welcome to another podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland and some deep dives into some more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave. I'm an army surgical trainee, a basics responder and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlochry. Today joining us, we've got Helen Marshall. Helen has been a midwife for just a fraction shy of 40 years now, went to Africa early on in her career, and since then she's done all sorts of jobs. She's been on the board of the Royal College of Midwifery. She's one of the directors of the Scottish Multiprofessional Maternity Development Programme, and she's been doing that for 13 years. She sits on the clinical advisory group for the Scottish Ambulance Service, and she does some work with us at Basics, doing teaching on the portfolio course, looking at maternity and all aspects of birth and delivery. Helen, thanks so much for coming on to join us. Oh, thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. Now, we had a chat with one of your colleagues about normal birth in inverted commas, and I gather you've got the slightly messier topic of postpartum hemorrhage. Yes, I've got that topic. It's just that little bit more complicated, but it is something that will happen a lot and may happen a lot in pre-hospital care settings. Now, normally, bleeding is pretty much my day-to-day bread and butter. But I have to say, given all the stresses of dealing with birth, it will be the last thing that I would be would be happy with dealing with. And I think it's one of those things that often isn't really talked about. I think there's quite a recognition, particularly in the ambulance service, that this is a likelihood that women can actually bleed. And it is one of the leading causes of maternal mortality worldwide. And even here in Scotland, we will have problems and we've got good access to resuscitation, to drugs, blood transfusion, etc. But occasionally these hemorrhages can cause quite a lot of maternal mortality. Between 2015 and 2017, the Embrace UK Saving Mothers' Lives, Improving Mothers' Care, which is a confidential inquiry into maternal deaths, found that hemorrhage accounts for about 8% of all maternal deaths and it is a significant cause of maternal morbidity even in the UK. So I'm guessing that if this is something that affects folk all over the UK and and is a significant cause of mortality it's going to be something that's potentially fairly tricky to treat in the pre-hospital environment. Yes, it definitely is harder in the pre-hospital environment than it is in the hospital. And we need to think about different types of strategies and we need to think about most pre-hospital care people won't have uterotonics. Some will, but the most won't have access to that. And that is our first line treatment. I wondered whether it would be useful to talk to you about the physiology of a pregnant woman. Absolutely. Yeah, always good to go go back to to the basics. So there's quite a number of physiological and anatomical changes during pregnancy, not just the bump developing, and they influence any kind of management. But the most important one is probably um, the cardiovascular system. So there is an increase in cardiac output 
by 20 to 30% in the first 10 weeks and a woman's heart rate will increase a little, about 10 to 15 beats per minute. She'll have a slight decrease in her blood pressure. But one of the main things um, is that she'll have an increased weight and the big uterus means that she should be cared for if she collapses, etc. in the left lateral, preferably. But that's not ideal in an ambulance. So you can nurse her on her right side. The increased blood volume that she has is about 45% and she has a small increase of some red blood cells. And that means that she can become a wee bit anemic. So therefore, she doesn't tolerate some things quite as well. The one thing that's really important is that due to the increase in the blood volume that she has, she is able to tolerate greater blood loss before she shows signs of hypovolemia. And people can get caught out quite a bit in that, in that they think, well, her blood pressure's fine, um, but she can be really seriously quite ill by the time her blood pressure drops because she's young, usually fit and healthy. So it is really important for everybody to remember that. There are also some changes in the respiratory system, such as increasing in breathing, some shortness of breath is common. So we need to be aware that she might require increased oxygen and usually at a high flow. The few births that I've seen, they've not exactly been kind of clean and tidy affairs. And am I right in saying that there's always a little bit of bleeding involved? Yes, there's always a bit of bleeding. About two to three hundred mLs is normal. And what does that equate to? Well, you know, it's quite difficult, especially if the membranes rupture. If the membranes rupture, it can dilute the amount of blood or it can kind of hide it. It's about milk. It spills all over the place. And that's the same a bit with a normal birth. So usually if she has reasonably heavily stained continence pad, that's about two to three hundred mLs mixed with some lycra, which is the fluid around the baby. So that would be normal. Okay, so anything significantly more than that, then we're going to call... A postpartum hemorrhage? Yes, so there's different degrees of postpartum hemorrhage and that's the stuff, the hemorrhage that happens within the first 24 hours of the birth of the baby. A secondary postpartum hemorrhage would be after a few days. So a primary postpartum hemorrhage is divided up into kind of minor and major amounts and 500 to 1,000 mLs is a minor one, but still requires management. A major one, which is greater than a thousand mLs, is then divided more into moderate one to two thousand and severe over two thousand, which it seems excessive in many other situations. But because of the increase of the the blood supply that she has, she can manage with a, a lot of that. So a, a minor one, you probably would only just see a rise in pulse with that. But it's the fact that it's quite difficult to work out how much blood loss there is. And so we just need to keep an eye on that. Okay. Is there any way of kind of risk stratifying what types of pregnancies, what types of patients get postpartum? So there is quite a lot of risk factors. Your multiple pregnancies, uh, women who have had a postpartum hemorrhage before. However, it is quite difficult to predict 
which patients will have a postpartum hemorrhage. And it is important to make sure that we do recognise when we do have a major hemorrhage as that can lead to significant problems for the woman and including eternal death. Okay, so we know it's a significant cause of mortality and morbidity. We know we can't necessarily predict who's going to be suffering from it. Can we stop it at minute one? Is there a symbols trick we can use to stop it from happening in the first Yes, well, firstly, women are usually quite aware of their risk factors. So we do have a good communication with the women to make sure that they are aware of what the risks are. Many of the women will not have case notes. I think Lucy would have mentioned that last week and they have a BadgerNet app, but not every woman has that. But they should be clear on what their risk factors are and they're encouraged to speak to anybody that's caring for them about that. So can we prevent postpartum hemorrhage? Well, it can be quite difficult. If they are in a high-risk hospital setting, they have active management of the third stage of labour, which involves them getting an injection into the leg of a uterotonic and then have controlled cord traction. And we would tend to use either oxytocin or scintimetrin. That's very useful for women in that setting or where the person attending does have access um, to those drugs. If she's at risk, then she should have that after the baby's delivered. You mentioned uterotonics there. I must admit, I, I may well have napped through much of the pharmacology of a uh, bit of med school. What do those drugs do? What they do is, in simple terms, is they help the uterine vessels to clamp down. So it encourages contractions in the uterus and all those muscles then block the area where the placenta was, which is a raw surface. And so therefore, when that clamps down by the use of the uterotonics, it helps the placenta to separate and then the placenta can then shrink down even more. And so therefore, that stops the bleeding. Okay. Now, I must admit, I certainly don't carry oxytocin or symptometrin in my kit from the Scottish Ambulance Service. Any yes, um, it's very good that for maybe just about the last year, paramedics have had access to misoprostol. And the dosage that's advised in the GR Calc is 600 micrograms, and that can be given orally after the delivery of the baby to prevent PPH. So that's the equivalent of three tablets, and they look a bit like pan drops. And if the woman is able to chat to you and looks well, she can easily swallow those, and that will help in the prevention of a postpartum hemorrhage. I must admit, I've looked at them in the drugs pack and thought, oh, that looks terrifying, and tucked it away <laughs> in the corner. <laughs> so I'll maybe have a, yes. have a dig, dig of them out. Um, any patients that we shouldn't be giving mesoprostol to? No, they're usually suitable for most women, which is a difference from syntometrin, for example. You can't give syntometrin to women who have got high blood pressure. Mesoprostol is usually safe for most women. So that's in the box of stop it before it becomes a problem, get through delivery, and then three tablets and hopefully that will that, that will would knock, hopefully things, on knock the head. things on the head and the women will hopefully then deliver their placenta fairly quickly. The other thing that they can do if they, they don't have access to misoprostol because the ambulance technicians won't have access to misoprostol. So a uterine massage 
could be useful both before the delivery of the placenta or after the delivery of the placenta because it also promotes contraction of the uterus. And to do that, you just go and look at the woman's lower abdomen. In the first hour after delivery, the uterus is usually round about or just above the umbilicus and so you could just find that by feeling and when you find the top of the uterus you then just start to stimulate the uterus by repetitive massaging and that should help things too. Okay now from the little bit of pre-reading I've done the four T's come up quite Yes a bit. the four T's very useful to remember and the most common one is tone and that is where the uterus isn't contracting down in the third stage of labour, which is after the baby's been born and before the placenta has delivered. And rubbing up of the uterus, as I just mentioned before, is something that is very useful to do. So the best drug for this is a slow bolus of syntocinin intravenously or intramuscularly. But because you don't have that, then you can give misoprostol. And so this is giving misoprostol after the delivery of the baby and after you have identified that there's a postpartum hemorrhage. So more than, you know, up to about 500 mLs, you would start to think about giving your misoprostol. And GR Calc says, again, about 600 micrograms, but in some areas we'll give up to five tablets. So if you're not getting any effect, you can give more. And I believe in the ambulance, they do have five tablets of misoprostol. So that that's a gram. The other thing that is fairly common is tissues. That is usually if part of the placenta has been delivered and there's little bits left behind. So that's why we encourage people not to wait till the placenta is delivered if they're nearby a hospital, just to move towards the hospital because the placenta bits and pieces can be left behind, especially if you're having difficulty in delivering it. And we as midwives really like placentas. We love to check them. I remember this from chatting before. <laughs> um, we do like them. We would always want you to bring the placenta if it was delivered in a plastic bag. It could still be attached to cord and to the baby. That doesn't matter. If you bring that along, we're able to check it, look at the placenta itself to make sure that all the cotyledons are there and then to check that there are two membranes, the amniotic and the chorionic membranes. So that's quite important because tiny little bits actually can cause infection. But that's usually later in secondary haemorrhage. That's more likely with the tissue. The other thing that can happen is trauma and most commonly in the pre-hospital setting, it would be likely to be from a vaginal laceration. Other things like cervical tears and rupture in the uterine wall are more common in hospital and that's usually because we tend to intervene a little bit more. So vaginal tears are more likely. So pressure with swabs can really help stem the flow of that and that's something that a midwife would do commonly just after a delivery if there's been some tears. So just back to just sort of old-fashioned pressure, pressure on the area. Absolutely. Doing anything else really requires good lighting and, you know, the able to visualise things. So not really suitable for pre-hospital care. 
The other thing that's really quite rare and is likely to be rare pre-hospital setting is thrombin as a cause of the 40s. And that usually is because the woman has some coagulation problems. Sometimes if they do have quite a large postpartum hemorrhage, they start to develop DIC or disseminated intervascular coagulation or DIC. And that can be caused by quite a number of things. But one of the most common causes is actually she's actively bleeding and she bleeds quite a lot. So again, hopefully that shouldn't happen in the pre-hospital care. So these are the causes of postpartum haemorrhage. And it's really important to identify quite quickly which one it is. But I think in most often it's tone. So tone most common, then sort of retained bits of tissue occasionally potentially looking for some trauma, particularly lower down the birth canal, and then rarely thrombin and, yes. and coagulation problems. Fantastic. Okay, so it sounds like a daft question, but what do these women look like? They've obviously had a delivery, lots of mess, uh, presumably or hope, a happy, healthy baby, but how do we know they're bleeding? Because it's not always quite as obvious no, as it should I, be. No, once a woman has delivered and she's had two or three hundred mLs, maybe, and you clean her up and she's cuddling her baby and skin to skin, as I no doubt Lucy mentioned, is a good thing to do. Quite often the woman might say to you, I feel a little bit wet and you would have a wee look. And sometimes, you know, just the sanitary towel might, you know, have a lot of blood on it. And so you take that away and you take the pad away and then you put another pad on, but it keeps bleeding and it's, it's heavy. I mean, you would expect some blood loss, but you wouldn't expect sanitary towels to be soaked or the bedding is soaking wet. So as I've mentioned before, because of the women are young and fit and healthy, they really are quite unwell by the time you actually see signs of shock or pallor or their skin gets a bit clammy. Most common you would feel their pulse rising and we would regularly check that after she's delivered. And once her blood pressure starts to fall again, it's really quite a late sign. And if you're recording her SATs, you'll start to see the SATs going down. But usually the woman is likely to say to you, I'm not feeling very well or I feel a bit tired or, you know, you see quite a lot of blood. And am I right in saying that some of the blood can almost be masked by just pooling? Yes, that's possible, but unusual as well. It's usually obvious rather than being hidden. But if you see a woman becoming unwell, it's always a good idea just after she's had a baby is to check her tummy and rub up the fundus as we've talked about before. And if you feel it a little bit boggy, and I suppose try to think how to describe it. So it feels a bit soft when you get feel the uterus. And if it feels that soft, boggy way, you need to rub it up because a uterus that is well contracted should feel like a cricket ball. It should feel really, really firm and kind of rises up and feels firm. And so therefore, when you're rubbing it, she should stop bleeding. So we've identified that we've potentially got a problem and 
with a bit like well, I picked this up before we've started to see the clinical signs of shock, and we're just we're going on that high degree of suspicion. Do I need to do anything different from my usual kind of A to E? management of, of what is essentially just, I guess, trauma. Well, absolutely. It is important that we deal with the life-threatening things first and that we deal with the A, B, C, D, E. It is very important. And for people who are managing these women in the pre-hospital care setting are maybe unlikely to have um, someone to give them a hand. And it just depends on whether it's suitable to go and phone straight away and get some assistance. We try to get the mother flat because the baby is delivered. We don't need to think about tilting her. And if you've got oxygen, giving her high flow, about 15 litres of oxygen. I know in the pre-hospital setting that might make people a little bit anxious, but they do really need quite a high degree of oxygen. One of the important things is to get venflones and large venflones in. It's amazing the, the different speed that fluids can flow when you're using 16 gauge or grey venflones. It is really important that you start to think about how much blood loss she actually has because that will give you an idea of what you need to do next. I should have said when we have our grey venflones, we're wanting to start giving her some fluid and we tend to this quite often makes people who deal with trauma quite anxious a larger amount of fluid because we don't titrate to the blood loss and what we've got to remember also is that when a woman has delivered and she's already lost two to three hundred mls and then if she's into a postpartum hemorrhage five or six hundred mls they're at a loss already considerably more than other people with bleeding. We used to say that, oh, you know, 1,500 mLs would happen before you saw the blood pressure drop. But it is important to note that women are different depend on the weight that they are. So a woman who is just 50 kilos, by the time she's lost 1,500 mLs, that's 30% loss. If she's 70 kilos, she'll tolerate it a bit more. And and 1,500 mLs, you know, is maybe about 20% of her loss. So one of the things that we ask people to look at is to think about it's really bad if she's lost 30% of her circulating volume because her blood pressure will drop by 30, her heart rate rises by 30, her respiratory rate is greater than 30 and her haemoglobin has dropped by 30%. And also we have, you know, 30% of her urine output, our urine output will be particularly um, poor. So that's why it's really important to correlate between how much you think you've lost and how much fluid also that you're thinking about giving her. You mentioned the ATE assessment. I don't need to sort of go through that, but We've mentioned checking the abdomen. So again, it's important to do that. If you are able to catheterize, then it's very useful to catheterize the patient and just leave the catheter in. It makes it easier to assess what's going on. Also, if her bladder is full, it makes it harder to get the uterus to contract. So also it's giving you signals as to how well she is. Yes, so there are other things that you can go on if you don't have any drugs and she starts to bleed a lot. 
can do either internal or external bimanual compression. But at this stage in, an, in, in the first sort of primary survey, I would expect that you wouldn't need to do that. It would be when there was a considerable deterioration. Our assessment's pretty similar to a, a standard A2E, but with a bit more attention paid presumably to the belly, yes. seeing if we can rub up some contractions. And then in management, my standard go-to would be 250 mil boluses <laughs> titrated against the radial pulse. And I get, get the impression that you're I am wanting you to be more significantly generous. more generous. And I've had lots of discussions with anaesthetists about this. And we are learning from trauma research that has gone on, but it's still is recommended that if a woman is having a big postpartum hemorrhage that we want to start to replace the fluids quickly. And so we want to try and give up to about two litres of Hartman's. Now I'm going to say warmed, but that's almost impossible in an ambulance, for example. So that's difficult. And we can give another one and a half litres of crystalloid if we haven't got blood. And so therefore, you know, we, we have women sometimes who go on and have two, two and a half litre blood loss and they do need that replaced really quickly. And it doesn't actually matter particularly what the fluid is. They just need that fluid to help keep them going until we can get them to a place where we can either stop the bleeding or we can start to give her blood. So we'll go generous with the fluid. I'll take my instinct. Yes, I know know it's hard. (laughs) (laughs) Drugs. We've mentioned mesoprostol and... um, Sintimetrin. Well, I can't even pronounce it. Sintimetrin. Anything else that we could think about? I I know that in some areas, GP surgeries, etc., in more remote areas, they do carry sintimetrin and they carry sintocinin. But as these need to be stored in fridges, that's why it isn't used generally for first responders or for those in the ambulance service. But if you do have that, we would give Sintocinin and we give 10 international units IV or IM, it doesn't actually matter. We can give Ergometrin as well, but you have to be very careful with Ergometrin that the woman doesn't have high blood pressure because it can set the blood pressure up and she could have an eclamptic fit and that's another problem that you would have. Or the combined oxytocin and ergometrin, which is a zintimetrin. And again, that has to be used with caution. So that's what we would use for the initial assessment. If that works, then we don't need to go in any further. As we've mentioned before, we can start to use the misoprostol, 800 to a gram. Depends on where you are and what what you actually have. There are some side effects to that, temperature changes and gastrointestinal effects, but they're usually quite transient and, you know, they can be something not to worry about. Again, I'm going to mention manually rubbing the fundus because that's really important. You would do that continuously if you had somebody else there to help you until that feels really firm. Again, wanted to make sure that the bladder is empty. Another drug that in a hospital setting we would use further down the line is transanamic acid or TH. And that's used in the pre-hospital setting. So you'd be much quicker to use that in this 
setting than you would in a hospital because there are other tools in our toolkit. But this is a tool in the pre-hospital care toolkit and it will help to stabilise the clots in the uterine vessel. So it helps it all to clot. It works slightly different than the uterotonics. Differently from other uses of transanamic acid in a pregnant woman, a second dose can be administered if bleeding continues after 30 minutes. But after that, we can't use any other fur- further transanamic acid. I guess the advantage of TXA is that that's definitely in the vast majority of our folk will carry it and, and ambulances will carry it. And, and it's, yes, it's now and a I pretty think, familiar um, drug. We in hospitals learned from the pre-hospital setting about using transanamic acid. So it is, it is a very useful tool for the pre-hospital setting. Okay, so... I've recognised that we've got PPH going on. We've assessed the, the lady and we've done some belly rubs to try and rub up some contractions. We've probably given her, in my case, it will be some mesoprostol and then potentially some TXA. Oh, what happens what if happens you're not, if not anywhere? Well, it, that can be really quite difficult for you. And I think the consideration of moving that patient as quickly as possible to a place of safety, you know, should should be considered. One thing, if the placenta is in situ and you think it has separated, then do some controlled cord traction. But I wouldn't ask anybody to do that if they've not been trained on how to do that because you do have to guard the fundus. So we tend not to encourage that too much and particularly also if the woman has got an adherent um, placenta to her uterus we wouldn't want to do that so the next line if she's bleeding excessively you're not able to stop it is to start thinking about bimanual compression and bimanual compression is quite simple to do it is quite painful to the woman so you do want to have a woman who's really not well and collapsed before that you actually do it and what you're going to do is insert a gloved hand into the vagina and that sounds maybe a wee bit harder than it is but what you need to remember is a large head has been in that position and so therefore it's quite easy to put your hand into to the vagina and then when you then want to go up and push against the body of the uterus. So what we get you to do is to put your hand in sideways, then make a fist. Make sure that it's your fingers that are upwards because otherwise it puts a lot of strain on your arm. And then with your other hand, you find the top of the fundus, which is probably quite high by now, she's bleeding excessively, and pull that down and try to compress both hands and try to compress the uterus between your hand on the outside and your hand that's on the inside. And you need to hold that and hold that pressure for at least eight to 10 minutes And what you're hoping is that blood clots in the uterine vessels start to develop. It is only a temporary measure, but it is a very useful measure and can be life-saving. So you can do it externally as well if people are uncomfortable about doing an internal manoeuvre. It's not quite as effective, but you're hand would be on the fundus pulling it down and your other hand that you would have had in the vagina 
if you were going to do it that way, just presses down just above um, the symphysis and you try to compress that way. So that is useful for people if they haven't had any training in how to do bimanual compression. Okay, so just so I've got this clear in my head, internal hand is kind of is traveling north and external hand is is up probably around about the umbilicus feeling for that fundus of the uh, uterus and then traveling south yeah, and I, kind of that's exactly um, how you do that and your hand is not in the uterus it's in, in the vagina the uterus will have started to clamp down a little and so you're just at the the front of it it's not a difficult procedure to do but it is quite painful it's, it's very uncomfortable as well for the operator too but it is life-saving now i guess let's go to worst case scenario and and if we're out in the middle of nowhere and particularly out kind of on the islands where we really are resource limited um yes we well that, um, we can bleeding. also do external aortic compression if the bleeding is that severe and you're not managing to do your bimanual compression again it's a very temporary measure and you just put your fist down and press down on the abdomen and then when the femoral pulses are no longer palpable you know that you have got your aortic compression correct and you can only do those for short periods of time so I've heard of it happening very very rarely and it is very much more likely to happen in a third world country so it is an unusual thing to do but the bimanual compression is more common because it gives you time. Now just to kind of round off a couple of little bits routes for fluid obviously Two grey venflons, preferable anywhere. You know, are we okay using yes, IO? Um, are there any other uh, kind of IO is acceptable in pregnant women, but it's best to be given in the arm and the humerus because it doesn't seem to get to the right place if you do it in the leg when she's bleeding from her uterus. So IO is definitely useful if you are struggling to get a, a big venflon in. Because a green vein phone, for example, you know, if you got that in, it might give you time to get another vein phone in, but it's not really going to do that much good for you. So you do need these grey vein phones or you can move to intraosseous. Okay. I mean, that's, that's a fairly comprehensive run through from right back at the beginning to in kind of prevention all the way through to some pretty dramatic external aortic compression. Thanks for walking us through that. Now, we've been getting all of our presenters to give three top tips to responders for, in your case, I guess, dealing with, with Absolutely. PTH and, um, and You know, if you have a woman that tells you that she's of high risk for a postpartum hemorrhage, you should consider giving her the 600 micrograms of misoprostol after she's had her baby. So, you know, that would be a really useful thing to do. Another key point is think about the blood volume that the woman has and how she's able to tolerate greater blood loss before she shows any signs of deterioration. And so that's why you need your large bore cannulas and you need to replace the fluids. And you need to replace the fluids that she's lost and do it quickly with quite large amounts of fluid. And I know that in the ambulance, they often only have 250 ml bags so they're changing the bags really quickly, but it is important because they, they need that fluid replacement. Ellen, thanks so much for kind of walking <laughs> us through that 
hugely stressful topic, but I guess you know, thinking right back to the start, actually, this is this is really life saving stuff, and this is an area where most folk are, are very much out of their depth by the time we've even started to think about PPH, let alone. Yeah, when, I think when it's important to also mention though we've gone from a minor PPH to a huge mass of PPH. The mass of PPHs are rare. And so I would like to reassure people that they're more likely to come across in the pre-hospital setting a minor PPH that they should be able to deal with. It's more likely to happen in a hospital setting for varying reasons. So I don't want people to go away scared thinking I'm never going to go anywhere near a pregnant woman because Helene scared them on postpartum hemorrhage. (laughs) <laughs> no, I think that's that's brilliant. And it's given us a nice kind of stepwise approach that we can hopefully, well, yes. I'm going to smile away for uh, for those stressful moments. Brilliant. Thanks so much. And what we'll do, we'll put up some links with this podcast when it goes out. And I believe that team are going to be back for a couple more podcasts uh, around, I guess, more complex bits of delivery and looking yes, after. Yes, we are. Um, and, and we do have um, a video that may be a very short animation on how to do an internal bimanual compression, if that would be useful. Brilliant. We'll put that link up Thank as well. Thank you. And then thanks very much. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland.